0: Is the kingdom and the power and the glory
1: forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast. In and through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. And my name is Marshall. Marshall, I had someone come up to me the other day. It was Eric. Okay. And said. Boy, those last few podcasts have been a little bit spicy, oh yeah <laughs> how you that- feeling today? Spicy I'm feeling it too <laughs> yeah this this morning's this morning's topic is a really interesting one to me mm. and I know it is to you too yeah yeah i uh, it's it's very close to home, yes, we deal with this stuff mm-hmm. I, uh, I think the next two podcasts are going to probably be the spiciest podcasts we have. Yeah, probably. If I'm, if I'm remembering what next time
2: is. <laughs> next week's is, yeah. Uh,
1: so, so here's the thing. <clears throat> we're going to, we're going to say, we're going to say it like it is historically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're going to share where we stand on it, how mm-hmm. we feel about it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to try to be as gracious as we can for all sides.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: Which is a bizarre thing to do in today's world. (laughs) (laughs) The the easier thing to do, the more common thing to do, and maybe even the expected thing to do, is to just paint a paper tiger of how wonderful your side is, although it may not stand up to all of that Mm. attack that would come against it. Mm -hmm. And a paper hanger, no. No, no, no. To make the other side look worse than they are, make your side look better than it is. Straw man? Straw man. Straw man arguments. Yeah. Yeah, that was a terrible way to open a podcast. It's all good. But welcome.
2: Yeah, welcome. Welcome to quality radio. Here we go.
1: I'm having my first coffee right
2: now. Are you? It's my second. So
1: maybe I need need more of that. Maybe I should shut up and let you read and I'll drink my coffee.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Just kidding. All right. So before we get into today's topic... Um, we are going to, I'm just going to present some other things that are going on. We are still sitting kind of in the same time period we've been in recently, although we are going to cross over into the early 1900s, the early 20th century, which is exciting for us. Um, we're getting there folks. We're getting, we're in the home stretch, Mm -hmm. uh, last 150 years of church history is kind of where we're, where we're going to be over the next little while. So some things going on, um. In the 1860s, there's something called the Meiji Restoration. So Japan, uh, after kind of coming into contact with Europeans hundreds of years prior, had developed this really isolationist um, policy. They were, you know, shutting everyone else out. But what they end up doing is they end up that being that's reversed. The establishment is overthrown, and then they go into this intense industrialization, westernization that ultimately leads to them very quickly becoming the superpower that throws their weight around, you mm-hmm. know, in the world wars. Um, 1867, the United States purchases Alaska from Russia for pennies, seven point two million. Which in today's dollars, I did the equivalent. It's 150 million. That's not a lot of money. No. Thirty-nine in today's money. Thirty-nine cents an acre.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And immediately find gold and oil.
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) Oh man. Okay. So uh, while the ink was still wet. Yeah, I know. Um, 1894. Carl Essener invents the Swiss Army knife. Uh, Good one, Carl. Yeah, good one. Yeah. It had a different name, but American soldiers in Europe couldn't pronounce the long Germ- German name because you know how they have those massive compound words. So it was actually American soldiers who coined the name Swiss Army Knife, which I think is kind of fun.
1: Is it Victorinox? Is that the brand that it's, un- it's under cu- originally? I couldn't tell you. That's kind of the brand it's under now.
2: Um, in the year 1900, L. Frank Baum publishes The Wizard of Oz. Ah, yeah,
1: which is a is an allegory. It is an and allegory. And very different from the movie. The yes. slippers aren't red. What? The slippers in the book are silver. Huh. And the yellow brick ro- So we'll take a quick side note. Yeah, sure. Political sure. side note. Let's do this. There was a discussion about whether or not the standard of currency should be gold or silver in America. And all of The Wizard of Oz is an allegory about the discussion of whether or not they should stick with silver or follow the yellow brick road. Okay. The golden road. All right. And the only reason that the slippers become ruby red in the movie that everyone loves so much is because color television had just been invented.
2: Right. And they just
1: wanted to flex their muscles, (laughs) and so they retell the story. Uh... In a very short form. The book's really long. Sure. Retell the story in a whole uh, condensed version with red slippers so that people can be like, wow, look at that color pop off the screen.
2: Interesting.
1: And all those with black and white TVs were like, oh, we missed out, honey. We got <laughs> to <Gotta> go, go. <laughs> buy a new TV <laughs> because it's going to come back on again. And we don't want to miss those red shoes.
2: <laughs> oh, that's great.
1: That's my understanding of the history.
2: That's cool. Yeah. Uh, 1903. Orville and Wilbur Wright make their first successful airplane flight.
1: And also in the same exact year, a man in Brazil. Oh, and there really? is great contention really? over which one. You're just nailing things that I happen to have on right in the pump. <laughs> ready awesome. to go. But yeah, so there's there's also uh, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, yep. they have all the museum and everything. There's also one in Brazil. Okay. That is a first in flight kind of a thing. Wow. Yeah. And a did, lot of contention between I did not who know was that. actually first. Interesting. But we all know it's the Americans. America! Uh,
2: 1908, and the Ford Motor Company introduces the Model T, which at the time went for $850. And uh, that's all I got for today. Nice. We'll, we'll leave it there. Some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We got some biographies.
2: Yeah. Okay, so... We are. Should should we introduce the topic, or should we leave it for after the biographies?
1: Yeah, we can can do it in the biographies. Okay.
2: All right. All right. So, our episode begins with a man by the name of John Nelson Darby. Darby was born in the year 1800 in Westminster, England, to a wealthy, landowning Anglo-Irish family, which means that they were loyal, English roots, loyal to the crown, but had estates in Ireland. That's going to be a It was a mess then. It continues to be a mess, even even to some extent today.
1: It makes you just want to say Darby differently
2: when you know that he's
1: there in the homeland. (laughs) Uh,
2: He was the youngest of six sons in the family, and he got a top-notch education, first in Westminster, and then at Trinity College in Dublin. Side note, there's a library, Trinity College in Dublin. It is my favorite room that I've ever been in. Oh, really? And I've been to some places. It is the most gorgeous thing. It if you if you're not driving, pause this, pause this episode and just Google image search library at Trinity College. And it is it is amazing. beautiful, beautiful room.
1: Anyways, my favorite room is the
2: podcast room with you, Marshall. Oh, thanks, Aww. Tim. Oh, man, look at you. Look at you being all sentimental. Um he studied law And he actually came to embrace Christian faith during his time at university, which is (laughs) the opposite of what normally happens. Um, However, he soon abandoned his legal career uh, because he felt that it conflicted with his faith, right? Mm -hmm. So instead, he decides to pursue ordination in the Church of Ireland. So the Church of Ireland is essentially just the Irish branch of the Anglican Church. Right. Um, Again, very political. Um, He served as a deacon, then as a priest. He served uh, at a church in Wicklow County, which I've also been to, beautiful, rugged kind of part of Ireland. And by his own accounts was very successful at converting a lot of the poor Catholic peasants to the Anglican Church. Um, However, things got really political because the Archbishop then determined that if you were going to leave the Catholic Church and join... The Anglican Church or Church of Ireland, whatever, you had to swear an oath that the King of England was also the King of Ireland. <laughs> and right. So things got political. So Darby resigned in protest. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, good on him, actually, I, I think. Um, not long after that, he had an accident where he fell off his horse, was very severely injured, and it took him months to recover. And it's during this time that many of his theological views began to shift. From kind of the standard Anglican doctrines that he was part of, Mm -hmm. Um, one of these was that just the entire idea of clergy, and not even just the like priest definition of clergy, but even just having like pastors or elders. Well, not elders, no, not elders. Sorry, pastors. I was gonna say. Um, Yeah, no, they. Yeah, Um, the idea of having like pastors or priests or whatever was sinful because God could speak through anyone not just ordained ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we began meeting with a small group of like-minded believers who eventually grew into a larger study group and then a movement that would plant various like-minded assemblies across Great Britain and then later to the rest of the world. And they became known as the Plymouth Brethren. Right.
1: Yeah, which is not a big deal in the South of the U.S. Mm-hmm. So any of my family that's listening... Mm-hmm. Don't have a lot of association with Plymouth Brethren. Mm-hmm.
2: It's huge here. Yeah, we have people in this church who came out of the Plymouth Brethren. Yeah,
1: um, and and the Brethren Church is shifting. The Brethren Church is so near to Baptist views. Um, I've I have it, when I was between Toronto and Stratford, interviewed with Brethren churches. Really, just to say, these are our points of difference. Mm. You need to be willing. To understand that this is what I believe and this is what I'm going to teach. Interesting. Okay. And and had them say, Yeah, I'm good with that. Wow. I, and I don't mean just like one or two. I mean like two in Pennsylvania and two here in Ontario that were willing to sign off on a a variation in, in doctrine to okay. have me come be their pastor. Okay. Wow. Um so they're they're very close and shifting.
0: Yeah.
2: A lot well, of
1: brethren churches now have pastors.
2: Yeah. And they're they're also not a uniform group, right? So there's right. there's there's a, a lot of varieties, there's a lot of splits within it. So you're right, there are certain mm-hmm. Plymouth Brethren or Brethren churches that are very similar to what we are. There's others that are very liberal, there's others that are very close to what the original model was. Right, but that wasn't a new view. Not that entirely, no. Anabaptists.
1: There are Anabaptist groups that practice yeah, that as exactly. well. Exactly,
2: yeah. yeah, no, you're right, yeah. Um, in the 1830s, he began attending a series of gatherings known as the Powers Court conferences. Wow! Powers Court. It was a wealthy widow who hosted these these big conferences on her property. It'd be
1: hard to turn down an invitation to the Powers, to the Powers, Court.
2: Powers Court conference. I'm there. I'm there. Um, these conferences were focused on primarily on the subject of biblical prophecy. And mm-hmm. the various views on biblical prophecy, and it was here that Darby first described a new interpretation of eschatology. And by eschatology, you mean like en- teaching on the end times, right? Um, which included a pre-tribulational rapture of the saints, premillennialism. So the idea that Jesus would come back before the millennial kingdom that had existed before. Mm-hmm. It wasn't very popular at the time, mm-hmm. but it had existed. A pre-tribulational rapture was brand new. This was a new idea that Darby had kind of come to in his study and in his, you know, in his mind. Right,
1: and this is where things start to get dicey for us. Sure. As Baptist pastors. Yes.
2: <laughs> what what year are we talking? Like, roughly? 1835, maybe, somewhere in there. 1833.
1: Right. Yeah. 1830s. And just now, the concept... What this is later going to be called dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Just now, dispensationalism is finding its roots. Right. <clears throat> By that, I don't mean its name. Right. There are those people who say things like, "Well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, so it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> exist." Right. Right. Well, Trinity is a later term used to describe a biblical concept. Yep. That is taught in Scripture in multiple places. A theme running through. Sure. Dispensationalism is not finally being named. It is being formed. Right. Which is a very different thing. Mm -hmm. No one has seen in the scripture what Darby is seeing in the scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's putting it forth.
2: Yeah. Now, some some people have kind of pointed to certain snippets of writing of some of the more obscure ancient church fathers as being somewhat similar to something that Darby Mm -hmm. that what Darby came up with I've read some of those examples a lot of them are a stretch and a lot of them and and virtually all of them are from guys that like we touched on a lot of the early church fathers it's not from any of those guys right um so anyways just just to say it's, it's a pretty new Thing. Now, new doesn't mean it's definitely wrong. We don't no. want to just say, just because it's a newer thing, it must be wrong. Right.
1: But. So so I was watching, <clears throat> you and I talked about this just beforehand. We mm-hmm. both grew up in dispensational churches. Yep. In communities that would promote dispensationalism as the only way.
2: I didn't know there was an only way till I was in my 20s. Yeah, I same.
1: Didn't, I didn't know there was anything else. Same. The seminary that I got my Master's of Divinity from, uh, when I went into my eschatology class... The professor sent out an email to everyone to say we are going to be gracious with one another because not everyone here is Baptist, and so there will be some who are not pre-tribulation rapture, or pre-trib dispensationalists, and we're going to be gracious with those people as they learn alongside us. Um, so so this is something very much integrated into our culture, but something that we don't stand with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was watching a, a dispensationalist teach on this, even just this morning, and his dismissal was to say, "Covenant theology, which is what we would hold to. Sure. It, we, we've talked about it before. If you go back and listen to the episodes uh, when we were first talking about the the Baptist splitting from uh, mm. the Reformed Church, right? The difference between the what would be like the CRC and." and or the Presbyterians and, and Reformed Baptists. Mm-hmm. We talked about that covenant theology, but the difference between or his his point was to say covenant theology is not really talked about until Augustine. I'm like, all right, so like the fourth century.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And then he's like, and 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 those maybe not Augustine, maybe you can go back to origin and you can find talk about, of course you can go to origin and find right. talk of covenant theology, right? right? And, right. and he, he sort of backpedals, because like I said, in the Augustine episode, everyone wants to blame everything on, on Augustine. Augustine or Constantine, right? <laughs> and then he's like, well, actually, actually, it's probably more appropriately pinned on origin mm-hmm. in the second century.
2: <laughs> After the New Testament, it doesn't get right. much
1: earlier than that. And then he unfolds <laughs> dispensationalism right. from Darby... Mm-hmm. Which is almost from a cent- who, who dies in a century that we remember,
2: right? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So Darby, you know, um, you know, promoted these views. Um, he traveled widely and made multiple journeys from the UK to the United States and even Canada, uh, even going so far as Australia, and mm-hmm. you know, everywhere. Kind of these conferences. Sharing his his views and establishing more uh, like-minded brethren assemblies, um, he worked on Bible translations, wrote some hymns, um, but yeah, his big theological contribution um, was dispensationalism. Um, he died uh, in 1882 in England.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, I thought he I thought he lived in the
2: 1900s. No, the other guys we're going to talk about sure. did. Um I was thinking Schofield. Yeah. Sp- Spurgeon, who we talked about last week, was critical of Darby Mm -hmm. and the Plymouth Brethren. Um, Not primarily about their eschatology, but what he saw as a denial of the doctrine of imputed righteousness of Christ. So there's we're getting into some we're getting into some weeds here, but the idea that like Christ's perfect obedience, his perfect you know his perfect righteousness is imputed is given, applied to believers, mm-hmm. not that we are progressively sanctified into a perfected state, right
1: right so the the idea here's how I would describe it. Darby and the clan would say, God's sanctifying work in us builds us to becoming a place where we are acceptable before God mm. whereas imputed righteousness says. The Holy Spirit does work within us to sanctify us and make us more like Christ. Yet, that is not what makes us acceptable before God. It's the righteousness of Christ applied to us. Mm. So, if I confess Christ on my deathbed mm. with nary a breath of processional sanctification, mm. I'm as accepted as anyone else because it is an equal part of the imputed grace of Christ and his righteousness that makes me whole before God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the the point that Spurgeon would take Yeah. instead of a progressive sanctification making us more presentable, more lovable Mm -hmm. before God. More justified. Right.
2: Yeah. Okay, so that's... Darby. I mean, there's a lot more we could say about him, but but he's the the father of this movement. Um, it's picked up pretty vigorously in the United States. It's m- mm-hmm. picked up more vigorously in the United States than it is in, um, in Britain, actually.
1: Yeah, and here's why, in my opinion. Okay. Looking at the social structures of the church, in England, we still have very much of the top-down mm. reforms— mm-hmm. Tradition matters, yeah. Kind of a thing going. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the states, we have this far more Baptistic mm-hmm. priesthood of all believers. Everyone do your thing. That's not only going to cause this to spread like wildfire, but it's it's also allowed for the cults and things that we've talked about that have sure. popped up.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's and it's kind of a bit of like kind of the uh, the forward thinking American mindset. Newer is better, mm-hmm. right? And And so, anyways.
1: Yeah. And and I'll even say this as an American, just Mm -hmm. to put that out there again. I think maybe the last four or five episodes, and maybe the next two or three, will cause us to see that the spread of Christianity in the United States is equal parts the best and worst thing to happen to modern Christianity. Yeah.
2: I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, next, we're going to talk about someone who might be a little bit more familiar. Um, Dwight L. Moody, Um, he was born in 1837 in Northfield, Massachusetts. Um, His father died when he was only four. So Dwight, along with a lot of his siblings, actually had to work from a young age in order to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, His mother, along with uh, her nine children, were very involved in the Unitarian Church that existed there. But at 17, he moved to Boston to work in his uncle's shoe store, and his uncle stipulated, okay, you can only get the job if you attend this particular Congregationalist Church. Mm-hmm. And it's there in an adult Sunday school classroom that Moody um, heard the gospel and was converted to evangelical Christianity. Right. Because the unit, as we've mentioned in the past, the Unitarian Church is not, they don't preach the gospel. Um, so he wouldn't have been aware of it, probably. Mm-hmm. Um He was a conscientious objector during the Civil War, so he didn't sign up with the Union Army. But although he didn't enlist, he did make multiple trips to the front to serve the soldiers there. He was also involved with the YMCA, uh, which is a very different organization then than it is now. Right. Uh, Not just a gym and a pool and daycare. Um, He became increasingly involved in the Sunday school movement. And based on his success in teaching Sunday school, he begins establishing Sunday school organizations and then churches. Uh, He plants a significant church in Chicago, but that church would be destroyed in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And in regards to that, Moody would say that he saved nothing except his reputation and his Bible. And uh, he would leave Chicago, return to Massachusetts, found schools there. Eventually he would found what is now known as the Moody Bible Institute. I think it initially was just called the Chicago Bible Institute. Um, So he's, he's, founding these schools he's traveling as an evangelist travels to england he meets spurgeon um, is invited to speak by him he grows in popularity he draws massive crowds across america um, until in 1899 he becomes quite ill returns home and dies um, likely of congestive heart failure he was a very big man and as he Mm -hmm. got older he got bigger um, they figure his heart his heart gave out now he's Significant in the story of dispensationalism because the school in which he, the school he founded, becomes a bit of a vehicle for that. He was mentored and influenced in his early pastoral years by some of the earliest dispensationalists in the states, and so when he is kind of he he kind of systematizes it to some degree, and and is teaching it um, as the primary right framework to view the Bible and in as you schools. said before
1: he he gives it its legitimacy
2: yes. That yeah. stamp
1: of approval, and this is where this is where we need to be really clear to say this is a tertiary thing.
2: Oh yeah, for sure, right? Yeah,
1: unless you choose to make it otherwise. Yeah, because I know people personally who would say dispensationalism is the gospel. Right, which is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah,
2: if you don't, if it's not a pre-trib rapture, if you don't believe in pre-trib rapture, you're not a Christian. You're not a true church. Right. Um, yeah, I mean,
1: yeah. So it, and and I think Moody is a good point to say that. Mm-hmm. Because I can get on with basically anything Moody has to say. Yeah. I he's He's great. He's great. He's he's wrong with dispensationalism. Yeah <laughs> as far fine. as I'm concerned. That's fine. But but if if someone came to me and said, Hey, I, I want to go to the Moody Bible Institute, I'd be like, Awesome. Yeah, sure. Do that. Yeah, I on. wish I could have gone to a place like that, right? Yeah, totally. Uh you got books coming out of Moody Publishing House. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Uh we talked last time about his relationship with Spurgeon a little bit and some of the poking back and forth. Right.
2: Literal poking. L- literal.
1: <laughs> one more one more little thing that I want to throw in about Moody. Sure. Uh, just funny quote. I've been sitting on this for months and okay. months. Okay. I'm so eager for this. In that he was a traveling around kind of evangelist guy because of the fallout of the Second Great Awakening and whether or not revival services are really being done, the right. he took a lot of criticism mm. for the way he did the whole revival Thing. Is is this really the best way? Are these really revivals? All these kinds of things, to which he most famously said, "I prefer the means by which I do evangelism over the means by which you do not." <laughs>
2: yeah i love it that's good that's good yeah so fans of moody even Which, if we oh sorry
1: i'm just gonna say that just tells you youtube commenters yeah were around way before youtube
2: oh yeah yeah that kind of person yeah
1: these guys who don't actually do it yeah they just criticize the people that are putting themselves out there oh man
2: just to say i rub shoulders with so many people like that Online. It's it's tough. Okay. The third, and I think we'll final kind of individual we'll talk about in the the story of early dispensationalism is a guy by the name of Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. Mm -hmm. That's a name.
1: Yes, it is. That is
2: a name. He was born August 19th, 1843, in Clinton Township, Michigan. Uh, family was nominally Episcopalian, so that's just the American version of Anglican for our Canadian listeners. (laughs) That's
1: that's Anglican, but you can't call it that because then you're
2: associated with England (laughs) and the king, and this is the States. (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's some other other bishop running the show. Anyways, um, Cyrus's mother passed away uh, only three months after he was born. So another kind of tragic, difficult upbringing. Mm -hmm. Um, At the age of 17, Schofield was living with relatives in Tennessee when the American Civil War broke out. He enlisted in the 7th Tennessee Infantry, fought in several battles before he he applied for and received a discharge. However, later on, he was conscripted again into the Confederate Army. Um, And at that point, he just wasn't down with it anymore. Uh, He managed to desert and escape to Union lines. And they let him live, let him leave. Um, A few years later, he would uh, marry. A lady by the name of Leontine Le Beau Serre, who was from a wealthy French family, if you didn't catch by <laughs> the, the my my you know, not-so-great French pronunciation. Um, they lived in St. Louis. Uh, he worked, or maybe St. Louis, they called it. Uh, anyways, sorry. <laughs> I don't know where my mind is going. Uh, he worked for the family law firm. He was apprenticed there, worked there for a few years, um, got his legal practice up and running, moved to Kansas. Uh, he actually gets elected to the House of Representatives. Oh, nice. And then is appointed, at the, at the age of 29, he's appointed the district attorney for Kansas. He was the youngest in the nation at the time. Uh, but he didn't have that job for long. He actually had to resign due to some scandalous activity that may or may not have included, some mismanaging of funds and taking bribes and forging of signatures. Uh, might have done some time. The, the details, the legal documentation is sketchy um, on what exactly happened, but he did not keep that post for long. He also left his wife and his two daughters, and she ended up divorcing him on the grounds of abandonment. Um, I think he was a pretty heavy drinker this stage of his life. Um, He would get remarried. It's unclear exactly when Schofield was converted to evangelical Christianity, but by the early 1880s, he begins to get involved in evangelistic work, mm-hmm. partners with Moody, amongst others, um, and then he pursues ordination in the Congregationalist Church. Um, he was part of these famous Niagara Bible conferences, which by this point, the Niagara Bible conference is like the summit, like the, it's, it's the, what was the other powers court? It's the new powers Mm -hmm. court. Yeah. It's the new gathering for those who specifically hold to kind of Darby's dispensational eschatology.
1: Right. And these kinds of conferences exist today. Oh yeah. Like there Mm -hmm. are so many ministries and conferences that exist today that are all, all about biblical prophecy.
2: Yeah. 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 Yeah, dating things and naming things and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because by this point, it's spread rapidly throughout the United States, um, you know, since the, the initial visits uh, a few decades before. Um, Schofield continues to serve as a pastor, but his big project and the thing that kind of connects him most to this, this movement, um, his life's work was creating the Schofield Reference Bible. Now, this Bible was unique for its time because the commentary, was not in a separate book. Right. Right. The notes on the, the passage were not in a separate book, but they were alongside the words of Scripture. So this was like your first study Bible. Yep. And it was heavy on the notes.
1: I would say your first English study Bible.
2: English study Bible. Right. Fair enough. Um, and due to its convenience of having a single volume of Bible and commentary in one book, it was widely popular. Mm-hmm. It, people loved it. It was published in 1909 and so many people got their hands on them. I
1: have one on my shelf right yeah, now. Yeah,
2: there's probably people listening to this podcast who have one. Um, yeah, it became very, very, very popular. Because Schofield was a premillennial dispensationalist, this view dominated a lot of the notes on some of the subjects it, you know, discussed in Scripture, right? So the return of Christ, the millennium, the kingdom, Israel, right? The distinctions between Jew and Gentile, all these things. These notes are included in in the Schofield Bible, Mm -hmm. and would help shape a generation or a couple of generations of, you know, kind of conservative Christians' minds on those subjects. Um, It became, I think, the primary vehicle for the spread of that perspective of eschatology in the early 20th century.
1: Yeah, I agree, because even if we look at Darby and Moody as speakers, their point going around to these places by and large is evangelism right. And when it's not, it's discipleship right. It's going to be sprinkled with this perspective, which now we're going to, we're transitioning from the historical into the theological side yep. of the conversation yep. sure. This is about far more than eschatology. it is. When people hear dispensationalism, they think dispensationalism versus. Post millennialism or all millennialism—that's not true. It's mm. dispensationalism versus covenant theology as two camps, right. and it is a reading of the entirety of Scripture, and the end times just happens to be its most standout moment.
2: Yeah, it captures people's mo- it captures people's attention the most, right? Because it's exciting, right? And and so. <clears throat>
1: That he has written a Bible with that has this running through it as the thread that runs through the whole thing. Mm. This is the the lowest hanging fruit for people mm. to get the full picture of it without having gone to Moody Bible Institute mm-hmm. or later Dallas Theological Seminary. Right. Right, where these things are gonna become huge. Southwestern right. is another seminary mm-hmm. that really leans into this. Um, and and I would say, for our Baptist listeners, uh, up into the age of what would you say, fifty? Maybe fifty and up. Mm-hmm. I would say probably eighty-five percent dispensational. Oh, it's over
2: fifty of the people over fifty. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, it, it's just it's just that rampant. It's the. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that runs the movies that we had in the eighties, right? Where you're brushing your teeth, and all of a sudden you turn on the radio, and there's been like this huge worldwide catastrophe and empty cars on the highways and stuff like that. Right. Uh, The Left Behind Behind series. Yeah. um, If you've not read the Left Behind series, just go to your local Goodwill, and (laughs) they have they have the whole thing. (laughs) They do. We have them here. Yeah. Uh, That. It is the eschatology the biblical teaching on end times that is going to be the most common through this era and and since it's the era that most of us have lived through mm-hmm. many presumptions and and you and I experience this too, many of us just presume that it's the one right, and everything else is the new, yeah or the progressive or the divergence,
2: yeah, when I was like younger um the, when I when I heard of people who had different philosophies on end times, I just thought that meant like, oh yeah, some people think the rapture's at the middle or the end of the seven year tribulation. Right. That that was what I thought the other people believed. Those crazy people who have such a different view.
1: Yeah, I was I was raised up to fight the banner for pre trib, uh, rapture, mm-hmm. because anyone who would think mid trib or post trib mm-hmm. has lost their minds. Mm-hmm. But dispensationalism was just a given Mm -hmm. it was just the understood yeah right but again we need to we need to subtract this away from Mm -hmm. end times for a moment and talk about how it runs as a thread sure so covenant theology has always taught since origin (laughs) that there are two covenants which is why jesus says a new covenant i give to you Mm -hmm. right covenant of works and a covenant of grace right Covenant of works is the covenant that's made with Adam and Eve in the garden. Mm-hmm. They have to execute the uh, the plan that was given to them, which was eat everything but that. And they failed. Seems easy enough. <laughs> <laughs> so so for all of for all of the memes that went around years back about that you had one job, yeah. literally, yeah. you had one job and it wasn't even a thing to do. It was a thing to not do. <laughs>
0: <sighs>
1: and then, and then from there, mm-hmm. we have the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. Different people vary sure. on whether or not that covenant of grace runs through Israel in mm-hmm. the Old Testament and then is renewed mm-hmm. in Christ at the Lord's Supper, or whether the Israel time was a foreshadowing and a mm-hmm. laying of the groundwork mm-hmm. for the a new covenant that would be made through Jesus Mm -hmm. at the Lord's Supper, Mm -hmm. but two covenants. Right. Dispensationalism has seven. Usually. Usually. (laughs) Traditionally.
2: Sometimes more, sometimes less.
1: Seven different ways in which God communicates with people, not seven different forms of salvation, Mm. but seven different ways that God communicates with people. So they would acknowledge the Adam and Eve. They would throw in Noah, yeah, right, as a as a dispensation. Um, yeah.
2: So they, I, I have I have it down here. So this is one one variation. So sure, but um, they kind of have these names. So they have innocence, which is Adam, Adam Eve. and Eve under under a probation before the fall. Conscience, which is fall to the flood, uh, human government from the flood to Babel promise from Abraham to Moses, law from Moses to the crucifixion, grace from the cross to the rapture, and then you have this inserted 7-year thing and then the millennial kingdom. And so they would and so the the thing is and there there's variations of that. So that might not be mm-hmm. entirely what the nope, do, that sounds right. To do with the whiteboard has to say, but um God interacts with human beings in distinct ways and what he requires them is requires from them is not the same in each of these time periods. Right. right. So it's not that God himself changes. They wouldn't say that. No. But the way that God interacts with people and what he demands from people is different.
1: They would even say, to be fair to them, they would even say the means by which a person is saved is not changed. Mm. They would call it grace through faith, faith in God. Okay. But how that faith is um, carried out is different in the different dispensations okay so yeah, for Adam w- and Eve it would have been carried out by not eating the fruit right and for uh, Noah it mm. was carried out by building and boarding the boat right and and so these are the ways that God has saved them through grace interesting sounds to me just my hearing of that I think well, that's earned that's not grace mm-hmm. it's merit for building the boat
2: yeah i mean i i and maybe i wasn't paying enough attention but like what i think i was taught growing up was that like old testament israel was saved through obedience to the law like salvation came through right no that will, the law.
1: that will be that will be it for israel right
2: that is that's how they that's, demonstrate their faith that's is how is they demonstrate
0: their faith
1: right noah system. built a boat yeah israel follows the system
2: mm. okay okay yep. interesting yeah. So the, like the other, you know, so that's what kind of one key feature. The other one of the other key features is just a very sharp distinction between Israel and the church. Yeah, they there's they are not this, in, in the dispensational view, they are they have virtually nothing to do with one another.
1: And this is this is the non-starter for me. Mm-hmm. This is the difference between the us and them that is made in dispensational theology is in my opinion terribly unbiblical. And unnecessary for the reading, yeah, of scripture,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, so like what what i see what I see as an issue with that distinction is it, like my question is how then do you explain the origins of of the church, mm-hmm. which was I mean, the apostles were Jewish, right? Right. Now that might explain why there have been variations of the view that say, "Oh no, the church actually started halfway through with Paul's uh, Acts, with Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, right?" And or at the end of the Book of Acts, or whatever, wherever you want to draw the starting line, because because the Jews cannot really be the church because mm-hmm. they are distinct; they are distinct people. Um, even just, even with that, you
1: have to acknowledge. I know that scripture in scripture, there's a conversation between Peter and Paul right? about one going to the Jews and the other going to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Paul calls himself messenger to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paul spends a lot of time ministering to the Jews.
2: Yeah, he always goes it's, to the
1: synagogue first. The two of them aren't traveling together. One goes to one community building and the other goes to another. Yeah. Right? Like that's that's just not how it plays out. He yeah. spends a lot of time talking to the Jews. In yeah. fact, In fact, as the book of Acts plays out, he spends more time talking to the Jews mm-hmm. than he does the Gentiles Yeah, in most of his areas, right? Like, yeah. that's where people are most upset with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so drawing that distinction there and saying that's where the New Testament begins mm-hmm. is really dicey. Also, it's dicey because we didn't determine what was the New in the Old Testament. That was done thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't get on with that.
2: Yeah, and I mean, Paul himself, like, you to to hold that view, you really have to avoid and tiptoe around like multiple passages of scripture. Like a mm-hmm. lot of Paul's epistles, they talk about like the dividing wall, right? That the the wall that was in the temple to divide the Gentiles from the Jews, the space where they could co like where they could be. He he talks about that being torn down. The idea of yeah. being that there is now, we're united, right? There is neither, you know, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile within the body of Christ. Right.
1: And so and so, it's going to be hard for us not to just spend the next um, I know. 30 minutes ranting in a way that people can't follow. Right. Sorry. <clears throat> so this us-them mentality creates a, a catchphrase used throughout dispensationalism to paths for two peoples, Mm -hmm. the Jews and the church, the two paths for two people. Mm -hmm. That is very concerning for me biblically. Mm. Uh, Like you said, the New Testament authors are all Jewish. Yeah. And all of them are calling people to the same faith in the same Christ by the same means for the same reason. Mm Mm-hmm. The only reason two paths for two peoples exists is because in the Old Testament, God makes promises to Israel that he's, he declares through covenant he will keep.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in, in Revelation, there is talk about Israel as mm-hmm. God's people. And so the notion then is this, Israel has always been God's people, But for right now, God has taken Israel and because of their disobedience, shelved them Mm. so that he can do a thing through the church, at which point the church will be given their reward for faith and faithfulness. Mm -hmm. But Israel is going to be brought back to the forefront as a people group and as a geographical place. Yeah uh that they always are the people of God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this that is the tightest nutshell to put dispensational theology in. Mm-hmm. I understand that if someone is listening to this and they're dispensationalist, they're just screaming at the radio. How <laughs> on earth can you narrow it down to that? <laughs> but that is that is the tightest nutshell for two paths for two people. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, I I just can't get on with that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways that people go about creating this distinction is they talk about the difference between literal reading and allegorical reading. Right, right. And and what both sides want to say is we take the Bible literally. Right. Right? Because mm. that just sounds like...
2: We take it more seriously.
1: Right. That's what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Where, these, where the two groups want to get to a place where the best way to dismiss the other view without really dealing with it mm. is to say, I, I don't want to spend too much time studying your position. I got stuff to do. So if I can just make it into something it's not and mm. then call mine literal authoritative reading of the Bible, then it doesn't matter what the details are. Right. Because I've made my point that I really love God and these people don't and you're crazy. Right. Right? That's just the means by which these things go about, which is hugely problematic. Mm. When a dispensationalist argues for a literal reading they're taking those covenants made in the old testament say this covenant is made in the old testament it talks about the building of a temple it is going to be the building of a temple right there will be ezekiel talks about a temple that temple will be built yeah it's literal Mm -hmm. right and when a covenantalist hears that and we say well maybe maybe in the seventh wave of the apocalypse there is going to be some tragedy, but probably not necessarily locusts with the face of a man, the hair of a woman, and teeth like a lion <laughs> that come up from the core of the earth.
2: They're Apache helicopters, Tim. <laughs> I'm sorry,
1: I, no, that's a real argument. Right, I know. I know. Um, maybe, maybe there is a destruction mm-hmm. that isn't actually these things. Right. And then for the dispensationalists, say, see, you don't take the Bible literally.
2: Right, right.
1: Right? Uh, both do this. Mm. I, I heard a dispensationalist saying, uh, even even this morning, he said, there is not one messianic prophecy about Jesus fulfilled that was not literally fulfilled. And you cannot allegorize anything about what was fulfilled in Jesus, so there should be no anticipation mm. that there's an option, that there's allegory in a genre of writing that is hyper-allegorical. A root right?
2: from the stump of Jesse? That was the
1: <laughs> very thing that I went to. Like, instantly, I went to a root from the stump of Jesse. Yeah. Right? The, the thing, though, the thing that happens is we then get into, well, that's a figure of speech. Right. Right. And drawing a difference between an allegory and a figure of speech, sure, which sure. is a fine line. Right. An yeah. extraordinarily fine line. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, so this is why when, when dispensationalists talk about the end times, if, if Revelation says seven years, mm. it's 365 days times seven. Right. And there will be a time when that event takes place, and you'll say tomorrow it ends.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, you can mark it on your calendar. Yeah,
1: kind of thing you yeah. can ask Alexa. Yeah, and she'll tell you mm-hmm. this ends in twenty-seven minutes and thirteen seconds. Yeah, right. So a covenantalist would say, "Well, the number seven is used in a lot of different ways in Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have the same battle talked about mm-hmm. in in Samuel or yeah in Chronicles versus Kings, and we have different numbers. It's because." There's estimations or symbolic numbers. Right. Right. 10,000 doesn't always mean 900 yeah. or 9,999 yeah. plus one. To the
2: Jewish mind, it meant a whole lot of people.
1: It meant a lot, but not a not hundred thousand. Right.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. an exorbitant amount. Yeah.
1: But more than a thousand. Yeah. Right. It's just a way of saying big, bigger, biggest. Right. Uh, is throwing out these, these rough estimations. And, and the numbers that come with symbolism, mm-hmm. numbers like three, and mm-hmm. 12, and 7, and 1,000, mm-hmm. thousand, and ten thousand. 10,000, these things uh, exist throughout Scripture. A covenantalist, mm-hmm. you and I would say, they exist throughout Scripture for this reason. They should also exist in end times conversations. Mm-hmm. Whereas a dispensationalist would say, no, those numbers are actually literal. They're specific, yeah. Right? Where I would say, you're accusing me of reading as a figure of speech and not as an allegory in the same way that I would say we both read a shoot from The Stump of Jesse mm-hmm. as yeah. a figure of speech. Yeah. Um, so so this argument for literal mm-hmm. creates a really difficult web. Mm-hmm. So when you watch a dispensationalist describe what they believe, this is where you're going to get really into charts and graphs Yeah. and things drawn out.
2: Right. right. To kind of make sense of it. I think the thing to keep in mind, I, that a lot of people don't, don't know is that um obviously you have to handle prophecy differently than Mm -hmm. um than history but even with with those sections of of daniel and the book of revelation essentially as a whole or the vast majority of it anyways it is apocryphal literature so it's not even the same it's not even the same genre as as like Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's yeah. it's, diff- it's a different thing. It's a unique thing. Just like you wouldn't read Psalms and Proverbs the same way, right? We all know you read Proverbs, they're principles, not promises, mm-hmm. right? You can raise a child up in the way they should go and sometimes they're going to depart, right? Mm-hmm. Like, But it's a principle of like, this is wisdom applied for your life. Apocryphal literature is supposed to be mystical. It's supposed to have hidden meaning. And a lot of times what you're dealing with in, in apocryphal literature is you're dealing with cycles that are repeated. So it's not this linear step-by-step thing. It's a jumbled mess because God is wanting to communicate something of what is to come, mm-hmm. but he is not revealing, he's not laying it out for us. This is exactly how it's all going to go. He's right. doing that on purpose. If God wanted it to be clear, if he wanted if he wanted what, what the book of Revelation speaks of to be clear, he would have made it clear. Right. He intentionally... Communicates it through John in this apocryphal way for his own good reasons, right? And this is why, um, since
1: Darby, mm-hmm. we've had a huge increase in people because because you, you you said a state you made a statement you you said that um, most of Revelation. I assume what you're trying to do is take the first few chapters, the letters to the churches. I think, see are, them. I think they're letters to actual churches that right, actually. Right, but a dispensationalist w- would argue no. Right, some they of them would, would. yes. Yeah, they would, would still argue no, this is about time periods and stuff, which is
2: yeah. an interesting allegoration. Yeah, and we're the church of Laodicea because everyone who's had that view is always like, we're the church because yeah. we're lukewarm.
1: Which, in beautiful irony, is an allegory instead of reading it literally as a letter to <laughs> a, another church. Right. Uh, but when when they. When they when they build these things up with with charts and everything, it gets really complicated. But it also gets really exciting, and sure. people want to see those things unfold in the newspaper. Right. Right. This is why um, people make entire careers off of this.
2: Yeah, predicting dates and
1: David Jeremiah mm-hmm. has made his career off of dispensationalism and predictions of doing math when things are going to rise and fall, where who's Gog and Magog and, and what Russia has to do with this or that. Right. All, mm-hmm. all of that. And, and not just him, right. Hagee. Hagee yeah. is, is big into this. Um, the blood moons oh, yeah. thing is, is an interpretation of dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blood, Two guys that wrote the Left Behind series—they
2: oh, made a killing.
1: Are exorbitantly wealthy, <laughs> and, and that's not to discredit them. Yeah, sure. They they took dispensational theology, mm-hmm. put it into, uh, played it out in fiction. Mm-hmm. People liked the story. Sure, they bought the books. Right. Yeah. Um. I mean, they made they made money off of it. Good on them. Right. Yeah, like, sure. Like it, it's not it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just to say that that this stuff sells. It does. And and we saw it a lot in COVID.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I even we see it every time something happens. We saw it with Y two K. Right. 11 the economic downturn of, of two thousand eight, the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Iraq. Both 2012, times twenty twelve, even like even though that was like a Mayan thing, there was people getting all worked up about that. Mm-hmm. Like it's just it's every and, and before then it was the world wars. It was you know. It was every every crisis is a sign that it's going to be mm-hmm. now. It's going to be now. And,
1: and it, it comes with some seriously implanted notions that I think people would be surprised to find aren't believed by every Bible-believing teacher. Yeah. Things, things that we have just be, been conditioned to believe. Mm. Uh, that the mark of the beast is going to be something that is written on or implanted... Mm -hmm. in people as a code like a physical act right right when social security numbers send they're called sin numbers tim in canada they're called a sin number a social insurance (laughs) number which i'm sure is even better for a dispensationalist than a social security number so great uh those kinds of things um just really stirred it up so That the mark of the beast is a thing that we need to be constantly looking out for, right? Uh, is something that I think a lot of believers would be surprised to find the greater majority of church history would hear us asking the question, What is it and how do we avoid it? and they would say, What are you all talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah, uh, one world government, yeah, that the entire world is going to unite under a single government, Mm -hmm. um, is a product of dispensationalism Mm -hmm. and doesn't exist in all of church history Mm -hmm. outside of the dispensational movement, Mm -hmm. which is at this point 150 years old.
0: Yeah.
2: Maybe a little bit more.
1: And I would say, I would say waning. Yeah. So, so dispensationalism in seminaries right now is hugely minority. Yeah. Um, And, and my generation of pastors Huge minority of people that would hold to dispensationalism. Yeah. Uh, Any? eh, What else? Uh, the The concept of uh, rapture, Mm -hmm. the way most people think of a rapture described. Yeah. Yeah.
2: The way it's described, the secret rapture,
1: being being called to God, Mm -hmm. so that we all give an account for Mm -hmm. our lives, the living and the dead, Mm -hmm. and set before judgment exists within all Orthodox. Concepts, yeah, yeah, being
2: caught up in the air, like that's that's scriptural, right? Yeah. So, like, just just to clarify, because I literally told people, people have told me, people from this church have told me uh, to my face or over the phone that like I I believe in heresy because I don't believe in the rapture. I I believe that we will be caught up in the air with Christ sure. at His return. Okay? Yeah. Just to just to clarify, I just don't yep. think it's a secret. I don't think it's left behind.
1: Yep. Uh, and and then basically anything to do with Israel.
2: Oh yeah. The temple will be rebuilt. Yeah. They're gonna expand their kingdom. So
1: So here here are here's what I got. I, I know we're at it. That's now. okay. Who cares? I don't care. We this got is, plenty, this we is, got is time. gonna be a fun one. We got time. Um I have seven reasons. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. <laughs> seven reasons why. I would challenge dispensationalism. Okay. Classical dispensationalism as presented by Darby. Okay. These are these are my seven biggest problems with dispensationalism. Uh and if if somebody wants to to speak to them, I'm happy to have those conversations. Cool. Uh because again, I see this as tertiary mm-hmm. and and I'm not one of these people that's like, this is why you are absolutely wrong. Oh and no. I'm absolutely right. No, no. I I would hold all of these by preferencing them with it seems to me that.
2: Yeah. I think and like and I think the reason like why the times I get spicy about this subject, it's it's out of a sense of like pain mm-hmm. because of some terrible hurtful things that people who are dispensationalists have, have said to me, mm-hmm. family members, friends, pe- people from the church, um, that like that's what gets my back up like i i don't like i don't really like it's yeah. fun to discuss eschatology but like i'm i'm not going to call anyone a heretic for being a dispensationalist i've been called a heretic for not being a dispensationalist oh yeah um and so by family I, members
1: <laughs> i w- i was called a coward i have i had a guy during the, so pastoring during the pandemic was hard the yeah. hardest part of pastoring during the pandemic for me mm-hmm. was the influx of Dispensational fears.
2: Oh my goodness! Yeah, that
1: were just coming at me from every side, uh, even to the point that a guy told me he's like, "If you're, if you're a coward and too afraid to teach your church these things, I will." And I just had to write him back and say, "I'm not afraid to teach my church these things. I just think you're wrong, yeah. and these are my questions to you mm-hmm. as far as your interpretation." Mm-hmm. Um, and never heard back. But yeah. These are, these are seven, although I have more. I just needed to keep it at seven for brevity and irony. Um, the first one, the first problem that I would have, or the first question that I would have is, uh, Israel was never the only. It was never about Israel. Israel was chosen and set apart so that they would be a light to the nations. Right. That exists in Genesis chapter 12. When Abraham is, or Abram, is at that point first called out, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To be a light to the nations. That the Jews became introspective, and it all became about them, was part of their condemnation.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right? Uh, So they were always intended to be a means by which God would show himself to the nations. Right. It was never about Israel. It was always about God. I uh, The us versus them insists that it is perpetually the Jews versus everyone else, mm-hmm. right? We can go back to my last statement and say it was never about the Jews versus everyone else. There was always provision for non-Jews to come into mm-hmm. the covenant of faith, mm-hmm. um, and the Jews who wrote the New Testament described this to us. They talked about a tree with branches grafted on. Right. Which doesn't mean a parenthetical setting aside and then an establishment of a different and then setting the one aside and bringing the other back to the front. Right. When a tree has branches grafted on, you don't cut the other branches off, put them in storage, graft on every branch... And then allow that to grow, chop those branches off, and then bring the old ones back. Right. Right? Paul is very clear to say not all who are Israel are Israel. Right. Right? Those who are non-believers and Jewish
0: mm-hmm.
1: are cut away. Yep. That is clear throughout the parables of Christ. The Gentiles, non Christians, as or non Jews, as they had been in the Mosaic Covenant. Mm-hmm. Are brought in, and they grow alongside the Jews. So mm-hmm. it is a mutual growing. That right. is the picture given to us throughout Scripture. Yeah. That is why uh, Paul talks about his heartache for mm-hmm. his own people that right. they would come to believe. Right. That they wouldn't reject Christ. That's that's why the Book of Hebrews
2: exists. Yeah. I need I need to make a one comment in regards to this because what what people will call what you just described the the derogatory term for it is something called replacement theology. It's not repla- That's it's not replacement theology. It's it's the fulfillment theology. Mm-hmm. Is that that the, the Israel and it's it, Israel's purpose is fulfilled in the church.
1: I got something on that. I'll skip to it right now. Okay, I believe that it is replaced. Okay, and here's why. Interesting. Here's why. There was a Jewish system mm-hmm. that was based on ethnicity. Mm-hmm. and a specific ethnicity and geopolitical group mm-hmm. that would become a light to all nations that right. all would believe there are parables about replacement right the tenants those people yeah. are kicked out right and new people are brought in
0: mm-hmm.
1: yet the jews are included inside of those new people as per the grafted on branches okay as and so, does the church replace Judaism as God's people? I would argue, one hundred percent. Yeah. But the Jews, as they believe in Christ, mm-hmm. are a part of that church.
2: Yeah, I would. I you know what I was trying, trying to get at is that believing Jews of the Old Testament are Old Testament church, and believing Christians of the New Testament are New Testament Israel. Like, that they are one in the—that's that, what, that's what I mean. It's like, we are united—through Christ, we are united with David.
1: Right. So Israel is going to be a statement for the people of God.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And in that way. Yeah. Right? True
2: Israel and the true Church are yeah. a continu- that thats the way I would see right.
1: it. Right. And, and so, and so the, the concept of replacement theology— Mm. Requires the the a rejection of replacement theology requires the dispensational view of us and them.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: But if it's just us, mm-hmm. those who would believe, then of course the church replaces the Jewish system.
2: Yeah. Right?
1: That's the practice of the New Testament.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There is uh anyway, yeah. I. Uh, All of the all of the New Testament authors are Jews. Mm -hmm. None of them say this message is for the Gentiles. You guys are just going to be on ice. Right. That's never explicitly said. Right. There's no. If you want to take the if you want to take that version of literal reading, there needs to be an explanation of that, and not just an assumption. That is too important. Mm -hmm. Right. It is. It is too important to say to a Jewish friend. You know what? I'm doing this thing over here with the church. You guys got your own thing coming. Mm-hmm. No way. Mm-hmm. No way. It's never explicitly stated for a group that plants their flag in explicit statements and literality. Mm. That needs to be there. Yeah. The New Testament authors called Jews and Gentiles in the same way to the same faith. Yeah. It blows Peter's mind in Acts 11. That the Gentiles are called the exact same way the Jews had been called, but it is what it is. And everyone's mm-hmm. like, Wow, praise God. Yep. yep. Right. When when Peter talks about those people who have come who weren't even a part of this group, but now we are a mm. family, when Paul writes there's neither Jew nor Greek, yeah. right? None of these people are drawing distinctions. Right. So why do we want to draw a distinction? Um,
2: yeah, when Scripture has done the exact opposite multiple times. Yep, over, I over, over, yeah, I already mentioned the
1: replacement of parables, uh, but again, replacement in a derogatory sense requires the us-them mentality and mm. not the, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is mm-hmm. to be a part of the church anymore, it's all us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important that we read Old Testament prophecies in light of the Old Testament yep. and stop trying to read so here's the thing they're going to the argument is going to be and it's not a bad argument that if God makes an eternal covenant it's an eternal covenant right it's important i think to note that God's claim on that is an eternal claim from his side but covenant broken from their side
0: mm.
1: right and so that is where that is either going to be considered, and I think it could go either way, either considered a broken covenant Mm. or a covenant that is fulfilled in Christ. If the Jews want to say, I'm not following Christ, then God's going to say, this is the means by which I am fulfilling my eternal covenant to you.
0: Hmm.
1: Right? And so if the Jews want to step off off the boat and say, no, we want a different Messiah. That's on them. Mm -hmm. Right? So this notion that eternal covenants can't be fulfilled in the church by God is a false notion Mm -hmm. because they are being fulfilled by Christ's work and the Holy Spirit's work in the church. Again, that's only a problem if you draw a sharp us, them, Jews, Gentiles, right division right which the Bible doesn't doesn't do. do uh lastly and this is the biggest one for me why on earth do you want Israel to again become what it was yeah why on earth do you want a temple that be it's, where God dwells yeah Peter tells us these people of old even the angels themselves would give anything to have what you have mm-hmm The Mm -hmm. knowledge of the gospel and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. All of these people wrote just with a vague notion of this thing that is your reality. Mm -hmm. Going back to a temple is going so far backward. Oh, yeah. It It is an advancement for no one. So then the notion comes, well, there's a difference between the Jew and the Gentile and how we experience God. If the Jews are God's special people above us, they get a temple and we get the indwelling presence the of God? Spirit. Yeah. That is not a, that is not an upside. <laughs> that does not make them more special than us. Yeah. So if that's what you're reading, mm-hmm. you need to redefine special and reconsider what it means for you to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Yeah. Right? Because Peter doesn't see it as special. The author of Hebrews Explicitly says what we had was fading. completely inferior, yeah, and was what fading away, right?
2: Yes, fading away in a sense of like it's 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 going, it's disappearing. The, obviously, the author of Hebrews is writing that probably shortly before the destruction of the temple mm-hmm. in seventy A.D. Right, but I think the, the thing too, like when when people get at um, you know this desire for for a temple, or or maybe Christians don't. Man, there's some, there are some Christians who are, are, there's some guy from Texas who was like actively working to get red heifers into Israel from Texas because he's a Christian guy, but because he wants to like force God's hand to initiate the end times and all this stuff and they're going to rebuild the temple. But like mm-hmm. any blood sacrifice, Oh, any blood sacrifice done at a, a rebuilt temple in Israel would be of the greatest offense to God. Spitting on the cross for any Christian, like it's one thing to say, "Well, I believe." If you just believe, okay, well, that's going to happen. That's a sign. That's one thing. But to celebrate the rebuilding of the temple, to be encouraged by it, or to encourage the Jews to do so and re, like restart animal sacrifice, is anti-gospel. It's bad. It's bad. 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 I
1: can. I can think. When when I hear Christians talk about the building of a new temple, a third temple, and sacrifices taking place, I think there could be nothing more egregious. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of anything a person could do mm-hmm. that would be more blasphemous mm-hmm. than to make a blood sacrifice to Yahweh.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
1: Christ uh, is, according to the author of Hebrews, our once and for all mm-hmm. sacrifice.
2: Yeah. Amen.
1: And bringing in another temple and practicing a sacrifice there is mm-hmm. the greatest blasphemy any person could ever commit.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and this whole idea of like the Holy Land and all this stuff. And I, I, and I, I would love to travel to Israel and experience these places and, and, and go like see, you know, see the places where, where these events happened. Like, that is kind of a life, a dream of mine to be able to go do that one day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sure. at the same time, it's not the Holy Land. Mm. It's not the Holy land anymore. It it just isn't right. Like th- the reality is, I mean, Jesus even says when he's meeting with a Samaritan woman and she's like, Hey, so is it on the temple Mount or is it on this mountain? Right. And he's like, look, the time is coming and it's already here where it doesn't matter if it's at, you know, on this mountain or that mountain, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, but it, are you the, the true worshipers of God will be worshiping in spirit and in truth. Right. And so when people want to talk about, Oh, the Holy land and all that stuff, listen, the city of Jerusalem is no more holy than the city of Stratford, right? Mm-hmm. The Temple Mount, where they think it was, because they don't even really know, they're they're guessing, um, where, where they think it was, that place is not more holy than this church property. And I would argue maybe— Was,
1: but not is.
2: Was, but not is. And I would say, if anything, today, I'd say maybe this property is more holy than that Temple Mount, because here, we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Mm-hmm. And so
1: yeah, so those <clears throat> again, <laughs> I'm gonna reiterate it's my, a tertiary thing for my own heart <laughs> it, it but it, it but can it, be a tertiary thing right if someone if someone came to me hardcore classical dispensationalist, mm-hmm. I would challenge them on these things to a point, that it might become secondary. Right. If, if, if someone came and said, I'd like to teach in the church and this is what I want to teach, I would say no.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And you know what? As Even as I say that, that dude in Texas who's pro- working hard to procure cattle for the reinstitution of the animal sacrifice in, in Israel, that's maybe a primary issue. That might be a gospel issue. Because do you understand the gospel? right do you actually understand the gospel if that's something that you're working towards yeah right and maybe maybe cuz cuz what do you do? you're you are either you are either thinking that god actually wants that from them which it means you don't understand the gospel or you're trying to force god's hand by encouraging these people to sin mhm which is also just terrible so like i i don't i don't know i don't know i don't know what that whole situation is but
1: yeah it becomes it becomes a very messy thing it does Um, but that's dispensationalism, two roads, two paths for two peoples, Mm -hmm. seven different ways that God has called people to express their obedience and, uh, and worship of him Mm -hmm. throughout scripture, um, brought to us by Darby and, every prophecy publisher and conference
2: since then. Everybody on CBN or whatever that that Mm -mm. channel is. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah.
1: Man, I feel like there's so much more to say, but we've probably confused people enough.
2: And we're probably going to get way more emails about this episode than any other one.
1: (laughs) What do you mean probably? (laughs) Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex
0: Walker.
2: Take care. See you.